Marcus Sweeney, and welcome to this special episode of I'm the Gun. If you were to add up all the blog posts and podcast episodes found on the feed at imthegun.blogspot.com, you discover that this is entry number 75, a number which has had some significance to various comics titles over the years. Superman died at 75, Sandman ended on 75, as did the equally excellent Lucifer. To mark my 75th, I wanted to circle back to the origins of I'm the Gun and put out an Air Fighters episode recapping the first appearance of Steve Savage the Balloon Buster, whose adventures inspired me to start a blog, then a podcast indexing some of my favorite underappreciated, mostly uncollected comic stories. The Air Fighters title, I'll remind you, is taken from the Golden Age comic published by Hillman, featuring a stable of great fighter pilot characters, including Airboy, Skywolf, Black Angel, and some others. Uh, I've appropriated that title to label episodes on which I talk about some of my favorite pilot characters. Now, the material covered here will be a lot of repeat information, which can be found in blog form. You can Fine by checking out the first six months or so of posts at I'm the Gun. About half of those are devoted to the the barely dozen, dozen plus adventures of the the Maverick Ace. Uh, But I always regretted running out of Steve Savage stories before I started recording podcast episodes, and I've wanted to, at some point before I'm the Gun's final shot, to uh, do an audio version of one of Steve Savage's adventures. This is not to favor one format over the other. I, I wanted to blog about Balloon Buster's World War I adventures, and I encourage you, if you're interested by what you hear here, to check out those early posts at imthegun.blogspot.com, uh, which cover some, some really top-notch war comics. Uh, but now I want to do a Steve Savage podcast episode. As much as this feed has been about celebrating my taste... <laughs> And uh, shining a spotlight on some of my favorite comic stories, I've got to admit that it's also been about personal development. The blog and the podcast has been a great learning experience for me, getting me to write again pretty much for the first time since college. Uh, I'm using some software, some hardware that's been new to me. I've definitely gotten better with the scanner since the earliest blog posts. I was never quite satisfied with some of those images I reproduced on the first couple of Steve Savage entries, so for the post accompanying this episode, I'm hoping to uh, to rectify that. As far as the recording goes, I've been trying to get a little bit better with each episode. I've certainly been dabbling outside my comfort zone with this, and I've hoped along the way to meet a few like-minded comics fan folks out there, and I feel like, like I've met a few, um, but enough about me. Steve Savage the Balloon Buster debuted in the lead feature of issue number 112 of All American Men of War. Temporarily there, replacing that title's longtime star Johnny Cloud, the Navajo Ace, who I spoke about in a previous episode of Air Fighters. Uh, Like Johnny Cloud and just about every other great DC Comics War feature, the Balloon Buster was created by Robert Conagher. And with this feature, Conagher had a great collaborator and artist, Russ Heath. Now, Steve Savage, who was almost certainly based on real-life World War I American ace Frank Luke, 
It was introduced uh, less than a year after Kanago's other, much more famous World War I fighter pilot, Hans von Hammer, the enemy ace, whose adventures were illustrated by Joe Kubert. Uh, but neither of these fighter aces were your typical war characters. They, of course, fought in an earlier war. The bulk of DC's war features took place during World War II. Uh, but what further set Von Hammer and Steve Savage apart was their portrayal by Kaniger and, and his collaborators. Von Hammer, the enemy ace, gave us an interesting perspective from the other side of No Man's Land, from the other side of enemy lines. Aristocratic Hans Von Hammer killed out of a sense of duty, and he was good at his job, but he brought a sense of nobility to his warfare, and there were lines that he just wouldn't cross. On the flip side of this coin was the wild, undisciplined Steve Savage, a strange character with kind of one foot in the Western tradition and one foot in the war comics tradition. Savage was also good at his job, killing German pilots, but he would do anything to accomplish his goals, risking his own health and, as we'll see in his debut story, putting his comrades in harm's way as well. Savage's feature only lasted four issues of All-American Men of War before Johnny Cloud was brought back for one more issue. Just as that title crashed and burned like one of Steve Savage's spads, Conagher wouldn't let the character go, however, and Savage showed up in a couple of backups and a couple of different war titles before co-starring in an excellent three-part serial in Star-Spangled War Stories, which finally pitted the balloon buster against the enemy ace. This serial is illustrated by Frank Thorne, and it's one of the few balloon buster stories that has actually been reprinted, in this case, in the enemy ace archives. Uh, Steve Savage barely survived that encounter, and Conagher brought him back for his own, his own three-part serial on the back of Unknown Soldier, this time illustrated by Dan Spiegel. This was followed up by another Savage vs. Von Hammer showdown, illustrated by John Severin. To me, this was a fascinating pattern. Bob Conagher would bring Savage back every few years for these little short bursts of appearances, and along the way, the Balloon Buster was illustrated by some of the very best in the business. Russ Heath, Joe Kubert, Rick Estrada, Frank Thorne, Dan Spiegel, John Severin. This is like an honor roll of the best war comics artists, and they all worked on... Little old balloon buster. Just to uh, finish out Steve Savage's publishing history before looking at his debut adventure, after cameos in the mid-80s trifecta of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is where I first laid eyes on the distinctive-looking character in flight goggles and cowboy hat, uh, so it was Crisis, Who's Who, and History of the DC Universe. After those, it wasn't until the mid to late 1990s that we were to see the Balloon Buster again. James Robinson in his Starman series strangely linked Steve Savage to the legacy of a string of characters who shared the last name, including Matt Savage, Trail Boss, and Brian Savage, Scalp Hunter, who Robinson revealed to be Steve's father. Robinson then went on to put an amazing exclamation point on the legend of Steve Savage in a story in, of all titles, Legends of the Dark Knight, Annual Number 7, in which Batman is drawn into a mystery involving the legacy of Steve Savage, and in which we discover the Maverick Ace's final fate.
Steve Savage flashback sequence in this annual is illustrated by Russ Heath, which to me provides this magical bookending moment as Heath drew the Balloon Buster's first appearance and his last appearance 30 years apart. And let me tell you, in 1997, that guy could still draw. The artwork is excellent on that issue. If you ever come across it, uh, pick it up. I highly recommend it. It's the, the, the best Balloon Buster story was perhaps saved for last. But uh, I want to, on this episode, recap BB's first appearance. So here I go. Booster? Hey, bro. Gah! Bats! Booster! Together! Wow, well, this is great. This is just awesome. You never said you and Booster were friends. <laughs> it never came up. A consummate professional like you, friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. Hi, this is FKA Jason's son again. I just wanted to take another minute of your time to tell you about his podcast, Silver and Gold. He and his buddy Roy Charlemagne Clary celebrate the DC Comics characters Booster Gold and Captain Adam, issue by issue, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, the real reason you want to listen to the Silver and Gold is their Throwback Thursday episodes, because I'm the star of those shows. Dad and I review the Silver Age Captain Adam stories published by Charlton Comics in the 1960s. You can find the Silver and Gold podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow Dad's Splitting Adam's blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We all know the real reason you'll be tuning in is to hear me criticize, uh, I mean, celebrate the Silver Age Captain Adam in our Throwback Thursday episodes. I can't believe Dad roped me into this. Searching for silver and gold If you're alone When you grow old You'll never find comfort in silver and gold The first Balloon Buster story was the lead feature in issue number 112 of All-American Men of War. Uh, with no credit box to read, the only info I'm sure about is that Bob Conagher wrote it and Russ Heath illustrated the story and the attractive cover showing Steve Savage in his trademark yellow bi-wing Spad diving down, guns blazing at a German observation balloon, which is erupting in yellow flame. Little inset introduces Lieutenant Savage with a headshot. He's sporting flight goggles and a leather skull cap. He hadn't yet perfected his signature look, completed by the cowboy hat. Wish I knew who the cover colorist was, as I really like the gray tones added to the plane, the balloon, and Savage's face really gives the image a moodiness that reflects the pretty tragic contents within. Story opens with a flashback to Steve Savage's youth, narrated by Steve himself growing up poor in a shack near the, as far as I know, fictional Mustang River, Wyoming. Young Savage was taught marksmanship by his pa. The elder Savage coached Steve, telling him to forget he's got eyes, arms, legs, forget your heart beating, your lungs breathing. You're not human anymore. You're the gun. Pa Savage would regularly, on the count of three, throw five dimes in the air, and Steve, repeating his mantra, I'm the gun, I'm the gun, I'm the gun, 
would put a hole right through each one of them. Well, soon Pa Savage took ill and on his deathbed tells Steve that he can't leave him nothing but his name. And let me just say here that it's no wonder the Savages were dirt poor. You think Pa could come up with some other method of firearm training other than having your son shoot through all your damn money? Anyway, Father of the Year extracts a promise from Steve to make the name Savage mean something to the town. Steve one-ups his pa, saying the whole world will take notice of Steve Savage. This plan didn't exactly get off on the right foot. After working a menial job for a while, sweeping up at a saloon, Steve was kicked out of town after laying a whooping on a couple of roughs who insulted his old man. After a time wandering through the West, Savage eventually found himself in the U.S. Air Service Flight School as the country entered what would be called World War I, and he was soon overseas. Despite his natural skill with firearms, Savage had a more difficult road learning to operate the biplane. Before he saw any significant action, Savage withstood the ridicule of his fellow pilots and a particularly antagonistic major. Steve insisted that things will be different. His flying will improve in a real heavy situation when there's something he can actually shoot at. And just then, one of three patrol planes sputters over the airfield, its wounded pilot screaming a report that the heavy fire protecting the German observation balloons over Verdun is just too much. And the others didn't make it. As the pilot crashes in a fiery explosion, the Major accuses the patrol of not following his previous orders, which he reiterates here. Don't attack the balloons. Though Savage immediately thinks to himself, that's just what I'm going to do to make them all remember the name Savage. Part two of the story begins the following morning. The Major has reluctantly assigned Savage to the day's patrol, being babysit by two experienced pilots. These wingmen tell Savage to just stick with them, stay in formation, and everything will be fine. Well, as soon as they get up in the air, Steve gets a itchy trigger finger. As soon as he catches a glimpse of three giant tethered balloons, he breaks formation. These observation balloons are protected by heavy ground artillery and by a squad of German Fokkers patrolling above. This doesn't deter Savage as he weaves through the flak, takes out one balloon, then another, and despite taking some fire, manages to destroy the last balloon, all the while telling himself, I'm the gun. Well, he finally attracts the attention of the German planes who are intercepted by Savage's wingmates. They don't stand the chance, though, and Savage sees both American planes crash rightfully admitting that this is his fault. He pledges to rescue them. He sets down his own plane between the two wrecks and gathers first one pilot, who's barely alive, and then the other. Without much luggage space on these biplanes, Savage uses some rope to tie his comrades to a wing on each side of his plane. And all the while, he's talking his... Wingmates through the rescue, telling them that everything will be okay, and 
They'll share in the medals he'll receive for taking out the balloons. Well, this little rescue mission is being observed by the German squad, and Savage can barely leave the ground when he's taking more fire. And Steve, the gun, manages to uh, shoot his way through enemy planes and find his way back to his own airfield where the Major's waiting for him. His comrades are dead, of course, and Savage is threatened with court-martial for disobeying orders and his actions leading to the deaths of two pilots. Just then a car pulls up. It's the general wanting to know the identity of the pilot who is reported to destroy three balloons and two enemy planes. This general wants to award him a medal. The major stammers a protestation, but the general's not having it. He says anyone with the fighting skills and the guts that Savage has has his permission to disobey orders any time. That'll be no time before both sides in this world will know the name of Steve Savage. After further threats from what's probably a slightly humiliated major to the tune of, you know, I've got my eye on you, a uh, guilt-racked savage vows to make up for the loss of two American pilots with enemy lives. So this relationship between Savage, the Major, and the General constantly stepping in on Savage's behalf would carry through the Balloon Buster's serial, and his acts of disobedience would continue as well, but this, this first adventure is particularly tragic. And cinematic, that image of two dead pilots strapped to the wings of a biplane is especially haunting. The way it's drawn by Russ Heath, I can just see the bodies rolling back and forth as the plane turns and banks. It's pretty chilling. And that's the first Balloon Buster adventure. To my knowledge, this story has been reprinted only once in an issue of Star Spangled War Stories, number 160, about five or six years after its original publication date, so... Not super easy to find, but there are copies out there. I, I highly recommend this excellent war comic if you are inclined to seek it out. Before I take flight, I want to acknowledge a nice email I received regarding the Where's the Trade Johnny Quest episode. I recorded uh, some time back. I got this from a friend of the show and co-host of the excellent podcasts Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, Darren Sutherland, who also seems to be something of a Johnny Quest fan. Darren writes, Hi Mark, Ruth and I had a great time listening to your Johnny Quest episode. Comico series was a favorite of ours during its run, not surprising, since I grew up loving the 1960s TV series, and the Comico series was truly faithful to the spirit of the original TV show. As you pointed out, William Messner Loeb's writing was outstanding, and the artists on the series were all excellent, and it was truly wonderful to have the amazing Doug Wildey involved in the series. I agree with that. I love the series so much, I actually bought two copies of each issue as they were originally released, and still have them all today. And that's something, two copies. That's, that was not a cheap comic. Those Comico, I think they were buck fifty back then, maybe two bucks by the time the series ended. Darren goes on to write, the, the Comico series was quite successful. It actually became a victim of its own success because the licensing got more expensive every time it came up for renewal until the license finally became too expensive. 
That's the reason there were a flurry of additional titles just before losing the license, including the Classic miniseries by Doug Wildey and the Jezebel Jade miniseries. I have those classics. Those are adaptations of uh, episodes of the show, and I just got that Jezebel Jade miniseries, and I'm looking forward to reading that. I think there was an additional two specials uh, that I don't have yet, but I will definitely be seeking those out. Uh, Darren says, Sadly, to correct you on one small item, I wish the original TV series had run two seasons, which I had said mistakenly, uh, but unfortunately it was a single season of 26 episodes. The series was just too expensive to justify a second season. However, the series immediately moved to Saturday mornings where those 26 episodes were rerun for the next 15 years. I used to wish they would just make six new episodes each year it was on. Just think of how many great episodes of Johnny Crest we would have now. True. The animated series did finally return in the mid-1980s when Hanna-Barbera planned to make 39 additional episodes to have a 65-episode package, which is what's generally needed for daily syndication. Unfortunately, instead of trying to make 39 episodes that fit the format of the original series, they updated the show for the 1980s, including bulking up Race Bannon so that he looked like He-Man, but even then, they apparently didn't consider him strong enough because they also added a new character named Hard Rock, who was made out of stone to be Johnny and Haji's bodyguard. Hmm. I missed out on those, uh, and doesn't sound like I missed out on much. <laughs> Darren says the new format wasn't well received, and only 13 episodes were produced instead of the planned 39. Two made-for-TV movies followed in the early 1990s that were well received and fit the tone of the original series better. Those successful TV movies prompted a new TV series, but again it was decided to update the series for the 1990s, so Johnny and Haji were suddenly teenagers and cyber-villains, and artificial reality were frequent plots, and poor Bandit was so old he was rarely used. CGI was used extensively in the first season in the artificial reality episodes. This series was titled The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, but I've never been sure what the word real was intended to say about the original series. I agree with that. I do recall this 90s series, but didn't. I was not a regular viewer. As with the 1980s TV series, Darren writes, the first season of 26 episodes wasn't well received, and an entirely different production team was brought in to produce a second season of 26 episodes. Johnny and Haji were younger in the second season than in the first, but older than the original 60s series, and Bandit was back in action. So the second season actually fits between the original series and the first season of the 1990s series. The producers for the second season tried to avoid the emphasis on CGI used in the first season, but were forced to use it to some degree because contracts had already been signed with the company producing the CGI, mandating a certain amount of material. Hmm. Interestingly, the producers in the second season tried to use the CGI in short information sequences episodes instead of using... CGI within the stories. Personally, I think the original 1960s series is one of the best animated TV series ever. I, Darren, I am coming into agreement with you on that and kind of catching up on, on the show and uh, enjoying it a lot. Uh, Darren writes, I neither love nor hate the 1980s and 1990s shows. Both have good episodes and bad episodes, and I try to keep a positive attitude and look for the best things in each version. It's a good attitude. 
And I think the absolute best thing about the later versions of the show is the addition of Jesse Bannon. Knowing we are big fans of something like Trekker, I'm sure you aren't surprised to learn that we like the addition of a strong female character. It's amazing how enduring the series is with the live-action movie currently in development. Hopefully it will make it to the big screen and bring Johnny Quest back for us all to enjoy. If you're interested in learning more about Johnny Quest, check out the wonderful site ClassicJQ.com. I didn't check out that site in preparation for that episode, um, and I definitely recommend that to uh, any Johnny Quest fans. Lots of good info there. Now that's feedback. Thank you, Darren, for writing. And uh, thanks to Brian Mulvey for liking my tweet promoting that episode. Things like this really make my day and uh, make sharing my love for all this printed material really worthwhile. So thank you again. I'll be putting up some panels from this issue of All American Men of War up on my blog, imagun.blogspot.com, so please check those out there. I'll also have some contact info if you're interested in talking more about the Balloon Buster, Enemy Ace, or other DC War comics. I'm up for that. Okay, thank you for listening. Until next we meet, keep them flying.